0: What's the time? It's time to get Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a Senior Policy Analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, So this is episode, I think, 100 and... somewhere in the 110, so uh, not a very new podcast anymore, obviously. But for those of you uh, just tuning in for the first time, basically, what this podcast is, uh, what we do here, is I invite an author on to uh, discuss a book of theirs that's been... uh, newly published or recently published on a topic, uh, you know, we think you guys would like to hear a discussion about. And then hopefully at the end of the podcast or, you know, even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go ahead and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So yeah, if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Larry Bartels, and Dr. Bartels is University Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Law, and May and shane Chair of Public Policy and Social Science at Vanderbilt University. He is also a co-director of Vanderbilt's Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions, a trustee of the Russell Sage Foundation, and a past vice president of the American Political Science Association. You may have seen his writing in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and many scholarly, scholarly journals, among others. And his books include Unequal Democracy, The Political Economy of the New Gilded Age, Presidential Primaries and the Dynamics of Public Choice, and Democracy for Realists, Why Elections Do Not Produce Responsive Government, which was co-authored with Christopher Aachen. And late, lastly, he is the author of Democracy Erodes from the Top. Leaders, citizens, and the challenge of populism in Europe, which was published uh, just a couple of weeks ago by Princeton University Press, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, Dr. Bartels, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be with you. Oh, no problem. Uh, so, so what made you want to write this book? What was uh, what was the genesis of it? I mean, it's part of a series that that Princeton University Press. As going on the Princeton studies and political behavior um, I assume Princeton University Press approached you about doing something for the series and you suggested the topic or was it uh, something of uh, that they suggested uh, how did it how did it all uh, come about
1: well it was a little bit of happenstance actually I have spent most of my career studying American politics and got invited to a event in honor of the retirement of a friend who teaches at Seance Po in Paris. And the topic of the conference in her honor was about the political impact of the economic crisis. This was uh, half a dozen years ago Mm. now, I guess. And I suspect that they expected me to come and talk about work that I had done on the United States. But since I was going to Europe, I thought it would be interesting to just teach myself something about what was happening in Europe, and I had what I think was kind of a conventional understanding from uh, the popular press about what was happening there, namely that there had been a big political reaction to the Euro crisis, the fallout from the meltdown in the U.S. economy in 2008 and 2009, and that there was a huge run-up in support for right-wing populist parties, and that essentially, you know, democracy was being seriously challenged uh, in Europe as it has been in the US. Um, And when I started to look at public opinion data from big surveys that have been conducted over the last 20 years all across Europe, I was surprised to find that virtually none of that is true. Uh, There's been really very little shift in overall public opinion and in particular in the kinds of attitudes that have been associated with support for right-wing populist parties in europe and so my first impulse in getting deeper into this was to you know figure out what had actually happened and compare it to my understanding of the conventional wisdom but then secondly to try to think more deeply about what the implications of that were for how we think about democracy Um, i think the basic lesson here is that we overstate greatly the connection between what ordinary people think and how democracy actually works. And that if you look at places where there have been significant declines in democratic norms and procedures, um, it turns out almost entirely that they're due to the choices of political leaders rather than to any kind of popular Pressure are top uh, down for
0: authoritarianism. Right. Yeah. So
1: democracy erodes
0: from the top. Right. Okay. So um, I guess before we really get it, uh, when we talk about populist sentiment, uh, you know, people hear that word a lot. Why don't you, uh, you could just tell us exactly what exactly you mean or what is generally understood to be, quote unquote, uh, populist sentiment?
1: Well, it is a very flexible term and Mm -hmm. people sometimes use it, you know, either to favor or disfavor a particular party or politician, uh, depending upon how they use the term. But what I did was to look at the patterns of support for 16 parties in various countries in Europe that are widely pointed to as examples of right wing populist parties and to see what kinds of attitudes predicted support for those parties. And there's some variation from country to country, but kind of thinking in summary terms about Europe as a whole, the two biggest factors are just overall conservative ideology, people who think of themselves as being on the right rather than the left of the political spectrum, and anti-immigrant sentiments. Um, And then there are some others that are important, but less important than those two um, one is anti-eu sentiment opposition to further european integration um, one is distrust of the political leaders and the part of the political system uh, in some cases concerns about the workings of democracy people are uh, dissatisfied with how democracy works in their country that sometimes leads them to support these upstart right-wing populist parties. And in a few cases, but surprisingly few uh, to me, economic disaffection. And so the idea that the euro crisis and the big economic downturn Mm. fueled a wave of support for populism seems not to work either at the aggregate level in terms of what we've seen in overall support for these parties but also not at the individual level if you look at the people who are supporting those parties they don't seem mostly to be disproportionately people who are dissatisfied
0: with how the economy is going Mm -hmm. yeah uh more on that on a minute but um i was wondering is there any significant uh left-wing populist movement in in europe uh right now at this time or i mean are there are there left-wing uh, populist parties in in Europe, or is populism almost sort of understood as a uh, a right-wing uh, uh, movement or collection of um, of concerns or ideas that sort of thing? Is there any sort of uh, any sort of left-wing uh, populist ideology in Europe?
1: Um, Not a lot. I mean, certainly in principle, you can imagine combinations of populist rhetoric and style on one hand and Mm. left-wing policy proposals on the other. But those kinds of combinations, uh, except for a few pretty minor exceptions, haven't gotten nearly as much traction in Europe as the right-wing family of populist parties. And since I'm Interested here in looking across the entire continent, I've really focused entirely on mm-hmm. the, the right wing populist parties, of which there are, as I said, you know, 15 or 16 um, to study
0: over the, the recent period. Sure. Um, so you said, as you said earlier, the idea that there's this populist wave surging through contemporary European opinion um, just sort of is not correct. It doesn't, it doesn't compound in the face with, uh, or, you know, with what the evidence is, it doesn't really appear to be so. And that there's a sort of a chasm between elite perception of what is going on, um, in Europe and, uh, you know, uh, what elite thought of is what's going on in Europe and the reality of what's going on in Europe. And also that, uh, um, you know that this uh, this populist wave we've been hearing about you know for the last uh, God 15 years now um, uh, you know the as sort of a, a boogeyman for Europe um, it's not true and that these these uh, that we hear about it being a uh, you know a crisis for democracy a crisis for democratic government democratic institutions and norms and all those sorts of things but um, in your opinion, that uh, that isn't true, correct? And these perceived crises with democracy are, you know, nothing new. This is something that, you know, <laughs> everyone always thinks democracy is, you know, uh, one step away from disappearing, basically.
1: Well, there is a lot of that. I mean, there are real frictions sure. in various specific democratic systems all over the world. So I don't want to say that, you know, there is no crisis. Uh, But I think the crisis is not fundamentally one that's precipitated by big shifts in public opinion. Going back over the 20 years that I'm studying, um, if you look all across Europe, the average electoral support for these right wing populist parties has increased, but it's increased from 12 or 13 percent to 15 Mm percent. So it's not a huge um, wave of shifting support. Um, I think part of the issue here, the kind of slip that people make, observers and journalists and uh, politicians as well, make in thinking about this is that there is hugely selective attention to particular places in which right wing populist parties have suddenly surged and gained a lot of new support and much less attention to cases where it's eroded. So, you know, in the past year, people are thinking and talking a lot about Sweden, where a right-wing populist Mm -hmm. party has uh, gotten more influence in the parliament than it had before, and about Italy, where a right-wing populist leader is now the leader of the governing coalition. But there are other places where right-wing populist parties that are, at least in terms of family resemblance similar to those, uh, have actually lost significant support. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do not with the underlying public opinion, but with various accidents of what's going on in the politics of particular countries. Often when these parties surge, it's because there's been some huge scandal or political failure Mm -hmm. on the part of the incumbent government. Uh, Sometimes it's because there have been other opposition parties that have collapsed and left an opening for one of these parties to, to emerge and so on. So there are specific stories in different places, but the fundamental error here, I think, is... Misreading election returns as though they were an accurate barometer of underlying public opinion I like to refer not to a wave of populism, but to a reservoir of populism Um, There are a lot of these attitudes in the public uh, Almost everywhere almost all the time and if the circumstances are right political entrepreneurs will succeed in exploiting those sympathies Mm -hmm. and in other cases We've seen less of that.
0: Yeah, you're right. And I I think it was in chapter six, I believe, that, you know, paradoxically, uh, populist parties uh, actually tend to perform better in countries uh, without where there's not much uh, populist sentiment. Like, for example, in Scandinavia. Uh, Why is that? Well,
1: the overall relationship is very weak. So you can point to examples in which they do well in places where there isn't a lot of underlying populist sentiment and other places where they do poorly in spite of the fact that there's a good deal. And as I say, I think that has partly to do with the availability and success of particular political entrepreneurs to exploit the reservoir of sentiment in a particular time and place. Mm -hmm. I think it has a lot to do with the choices that are made by mainstream leaders as well. In some cases, um, Sweden has been one until at least the last couple of years. Mainstream party leaders have been pretty successful in isolating right-wing populist parties and cordoning them off from real political influence. In other cases, they've Um, you know, either wholesale adopted a lot of right-wing populist positions on the mistaken view that that's what they had to do to stay in power or offered opportunities for populist entrepreneurs to gather a lot of support. I mean, if you think about the Brexit vote in Great Britain, um, it's true that there was more antipathy to the European Union in Britain than in most other parts of Europe. But I think the Fundamental failure there was a failure on the part of David Cameron, who's the Tory prime minister, who basically blundered into promising a referendum and then had to follow through on it, even though um, there was a significant risk there that it would lead to what seems to me to be uh, kind of a policy disaster and a move that uh, even many Britons now uh, have had second thoughts about.
0: Yeah, I mean, but Cameron called the call for the referendum Under the belief that you know there was no way they were going to lose it, right? For the most part, it was a
1: miscalculation, but compounded and kind of turned into reality by the uh, blunder of promising that he would call the referendum if he was reelected.
0: Yeah, and that's just a a way you know these uh, these populist parties, though they're um, you know relatively small and relatively uh inconsequential uh, compared to their more uh mainstream uh you know the mainstream political parties uh, the more moderate political parties uh that they still can uh you know affect change and, and make changes i mean ukip um i don't think ever had more than uh i mean just based on the way that uh, the westminsterian parliamentary system and their elections uh, operate. They'd never had more than uh, you know a, a member or two of of the uh, of the British Parliament, and were still um, like you said uh, effective enough in uh, or they grew enough and were effective enough in their messaging to get uh, Cameron to uh, to like you said sort of blunder into calling calling the referendum, you know.
1: Yeah, I think how this works is different in different kinds of political systems. So in a first-past-the-post system like Britain's, it's really pretty impossible for an upstart party to actually have substantial influence through representation in the parliament. And so they have to succeed by, um, you know, scaring a mainstream party into taking on uh, some of their issues. And that's really what UKIP was successful at doing, in part because they, too, I think, got very disproportionate public attention. Mm -hmm. There have been detailed studies of the relationship between media coverage and public support uh, for UKIP over time and found that, uh, you know, they got much more public press coverage given their electoral support than they deserved. And then that translated into increasing electoral support, which translated into more media coverage and so on. And so I think that's part of the underlying basis for the miscalculation about what was necessary in order to address that thread of sentiment in British public opinion. Um, In multi-party systems, uh, it's easier for these parties to win significant vote shares and Win significant representation in Parliament, but then the question is, do they have influence and how do they get influence Mm -hmm. in Italy, for example? Uh, Maloney, who's the new right-wing populist Prime Minister, um, is the head of a kind of shaky coalition that involves a variety of right-wing parties, some of which are more populist and others of which are less populist. And her behavior in office has actually been, to many observers, surprisingly conventional, I think, because uh, she can't go very far in terms of actual policy without the support of a, a much broader coalition. Mm. Um,
0: yeah, so I guess let's get backtracker, um to how this uh, all gets started, really. So you mentioned earlier that um, the book sort of summarizes these trends in public opinion in Europe or or uh, the Eurozone, at least from, from 2002 to 2019. Um, uh, where, where actually did you get your all your public opinion data? What, uh, what, uh, what were you looking at for your data? There, sure.
1: There's a uh, project called the European Social Survey, which has conducted surveys periodically in 23 European countries over that period. Uh, in some countries, there have been as many as nine waves of surveys, so basically every couple of years. And then there are several other countries where they haven't done every round, but have done uh, several rounds of study over that period. And the really valuable thing about this scientifically is that it's a consistent set of questions that are asked across all of these different countries and over this period of time. And so it's pretty straightforward to observe how much change or stability there's been in basic attitudes in each of these countries over this period. And as I say, I was surprised to find how little change there'd been. Some of these indicators dipped a bit during the Euro crisis. If you Mm -hmm. look at support for the European union, for example, it dipped a bit, but then rebounded to a level that's as high as it's ever been. Um, Similarly for people's views about the incumbent political leaders. Um, I was kind of surprised to find that even in the depths of the crisis, although people's attitudes toward the European Union soured a bit, um, they were throughout this period more confident about the European Union than they were about their own national leaders. And so I think um, imagining that this is somehow a – fatal barrier to further European integration as a kind of misreading of what people were conveying with
0: those survey responses as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, Europe's hit with these two crises sort of back to back, right on top of one another, the uh, 2008 financial crisis and then the the, the Eurozone, the, the debt crisis that began uh, in the wake of the financial crisis, right in like 2009, I believe. So, um, how bad did the did the 2008 financial crisis hit Europe? And if you could uh, just give us just a, a little brief outline of the of the eurozone debt crisis for you know there might be people listening out there that were very young at the time or not old enough to remember or not really familiar with it or those who. Uh, don't really remember what exactly happened. I mean, you know, it's been, like I said, it's already been hard to believe, you know, 15 years since then. So, uh, so what exactly happened this, uh, these crises uh, for Europe? What, uh, what took place? Sure. Um,
1: The original crisis really began in the US in the Mm -hmm. banking system where there was a Huge issue, especially with subprime mortgages. Uh, Lots of financial institutions were relying on the liquidity of um, these financial instruments that were backed with what turned out to be really shaky mortgages uh, from the kind of over mortgaging of the housing sector in the first years of the 21st century. And so um, there were significant uh, failures of financial institutions in the US and a huge push by the Federal Reserve and especially after Obama's election um, by the federal government to try and prop up the US economy. That spilled over to many parts of the world, including much of Europe. There was some variation from country to country in how hard they were hit by the original shock, depending on their specific economic vulnerabilities. Uh, But the problem was that this was not only a blow to the financial institutions of Europe, which had a lot of the same problems with bad debt and vulnerability to a financial downturn, but also with some of the governments of Europe, which were um, heavily in debt from having spent a lot of money that they were not collecting in taxes over the preceding decade. Again, a lot of variability from place to place in how serious this was. But the place with the worst um, debt situation was Greece. And as the economy turned down, social spending increased and that put additional pressure on uh, public debt in Greece. They had trouble um, raising money. Uh, They could if they wanted to, I suppose, try to uh, squeeze the financial institutions in order to uh, put the economy in better shape. But the problem was that the financial institutions were also heavily indebted and, uh, you know, not in sound financial shape. And this was the response to the crisis in Europe, I think, was exacerbated by the difficulty of trying to coordinate policy across a set of countries that have significant economic autonomy under the rules of the European Union, especially Germany, the most important economic player in Europe, um, was dead set against a kind of collective response in which uh, Europe as a whole would take on the bad debt from Greece and try to resolve the situation that way. And so um, there was a series of very painful deals cut uh, in which you know the Greeks would be bailed out temporarily uh, in a way that could only be sustainable if the economy grew spectacularly. Of course, the economy didn't grow spectacularly, and so then the situation became even worse and they needed a bigger bailout and so on. At the same time, some of the other shaky economies in Europe were dealing with pressure from the international economic institutions and pigs. uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. They were either bailed out directly by uh, the European bank and the the EU or, and the IMF, um, or they were pressured into austerity programs of one kind or another. So there were some places like um, especially Greece, but also Spain, uh, Portugal, to some extent, Ireland, to some extent in which there was real, Economic suffering, but if you look across Europe as a whole and especially most of the most populous countries in Europe it turned out that the economic crisis itself was really pretty short-lived and uh, The unemployment rate and the economic growth rate were slow to rebound as they were in the US But people's subjective perceptions of how the economy was faring uh, bounced back within a few years uh, And the long-term political consequences of that economic shock, I think, turned out to be less than many people expected at the time. We didn't see, you know, huge um, political turmoil, uh, even in the countries that were suffering pretty significantly. Uh, We didn't see a very strong correlation in economic downturns and support for right-wing populist parties. So Greece had... Uh, significant growth of extremism mm. on the right and the left. Uh, but there wasn't much of that in Spain, for example, uh, which was pretty hard hit, but for a long time was kind of exceptional in having no right-wing populist party at all mm. getting traction. It wasn't really until 2018 and 19 that Vox emerged as a serious right-wing populist party in Spain.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um as you even mentioned just a couple minutes ago, the satisfaction with the economic conditions in Europe began to rebound almost immediately after the crisis by, uh, by 2018, 2019, um, it was already half a point higher than it was on the eve of the crisis in 2007. And that, you know, trust in the EU, um, after the uh the euro crisis it's already starting to rebound by 2014 and as you mentioned you know it it reached its highest level since 2009 in 2019 and and another thing that uh uh, surprised me that uh, respondents consistently are, are are expressing more trust in the eu than they are their own national governments
1: Yep. And um, the trust in their national governments was also in significant part an economic issue. If you look mm-hmm. at the places where people express a lot of dissatisfaction with the incumbent government or even express dissatisfaction with democracy as a whole, it turns out that shifts in those views are pretty strongly correlated with shifts in their views about how the economy was going so even a lot of the political disaffection that we did observe I think was really not so much fundamentally political as it was uh, a general sense of frustration that was triggered by the economic downturn in places where it was more severe
0: yeah and even at the worst point in the euro crisis uh, you write that you know these respondents to these questions in the eurozone area still supported um a european economic and monetary union with a single currency by a, a margin of more than 30 points and by you know by 2019 that margin was 58 percentage 57 58 percentage points i believe so so this yeah this popular backlash against the eu in the wake of the crises or uh or this perceived popular backlash is uh, highly exaggerated
1: the eu is kind of a a clumsy institution. Um, it's trying to cobble together a sort of United States out of individual countries that still have a good deal of autonomy. And so, Mm. um, the pattern over a long period of time has been a kind of gradual solidification of EU institutions and a kind of increasingly united Europe. Um, people thought the economic crisis might bring an end to that and that certainly hasn't happened and indeed what's happened since I think um, owing to the pandemic is that there's been in response to yet another crisis yet more improvisation that has led to a gradual increase in unification so um, when Europe was trying to figure out how to deal with a decision to for the first time issue bonds that would be supported by the entire eu and the money used to support and bail out the countries that were hardest hit by the pandemic so that was Mm -hmm. sort of another um, lurching accidental step forward in european integration in response to particular uh, events and problems
0: oh that uh reminds me thanks for bringing up covid uh has covid in the in the eu response to it, uh, you know, the lockdowns, all the rest. Has that had any, have we seen any effect on uh, public opinion, public perception of the EU in, in the Eurozone from uh, from the pandemic? It
1: doesn't look like there's been a huge amount of change. The overall pattern still seems to be that people are favorable about further expansion uh, in places where they, you know, have been dissatisfied with, how the eu has responded to the pandemic uh the same people are saying at the same time that they want to give the eu more powers to deal with these kinds of situations so i think the dissatisfaction is on the side of wanting
0: the european union to do more rather than less gotcha and uh, so you also have a chapter in the book on the welfare state and attitudes toward it and public support Uh, for redistribution changed very little uh, uh, during and after the euro crisis and and now europeans now are generally more satisfied with the welfare state after uh, the euro crisis than before it i guess which is not that surprising considering uh, you know more people had to make use of it during that period you know at least temporarily yeah one of the big concerns
1: in the immediate wake of the economic crisis was that as governments were forced by their debt situations to impose these austerity policies, that there would be big cuts in social welfare spending just at the moment when the need for that had increased substantially. And there were a few countries in which that was really an issue in which I think it caused significant human suffering. Uh, But in most places, actually, there was very little downturn in spending. Um, There was a kind of slowing of what had been a consistent increase in spending over the previous period, uh, but not the kind of draconian cuts that some observers had been expecting. And as you said, really very little change in the public's, level of support for further spending. If anything changed at all, it was that um, they became more willing to live with the potential economic consequences of spending a lot of money on the welfare state. There were some questions in these surveys about whether the government should cut spending in order to improve the economy, and enthusiasm for that actually fell overall in Europe in response to these events.
0: Yeah, there's the. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that because there's, uh, it's sort of um, received wisdom at this point uh, over here uh, among uh, members of the left that that the welfare state in Europe was sort of like hollowed out by austerity cuts in the wake of the financial crisis, and they, they sort of use that. Uh, they point to that. Um, You know, anytime Republicans sort of uh, uh, propose any sort of uh, uh, policy on entitlements and that sort of thing, you know, they point to uh, Europe and, you know, look what happened over there, blah, blah, blah. But like, as you said, real per capita social spending on these programs continue to increase in most of these countries in the Eurozone, uh, you know, during the crisis and after the crisis. Or at least after yeah, the crisis. Yeah, that's right. And again,
1: I think part of the issue here is selective attention on the most dramatic cases. So yeah. there was a huge amount of attention paid to Greece. Which, yeah, it's really Greece, you know, Ireland, real...
0: Spain. That's the, those are the real – where people – the perception of the crisis comes from like those countries specifically.
1: Yeah. And um, part of what I've tried to do throughout this study is to keep my eye on Europe as a whole and to try and put – what's happened in particular places and particularly some of the smaller countries of Europe in this broader perspective and try and understand, you know, what we should conclude more generally from the cases that get most of the attention.
0: Mm. And now uh, another one of those big uh, topics, immigration, Um, we saw the sort of migrant crisis that happened, uh, I guess it was the middle of the last day, 2014, around there. Uh, But uh, even Europeans are not becoming more negative towards immigration. Uh, In most countries, public opinion has been stable and moderate on the issue. Um, There there was no significant uh, anti-immigration backlash from... uh, 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 from that migrant crisis, that, uh, or at least not one that had any sort of um, any sort of legs to it.
1: Um, yeah, I was actually surprised by how little shift in opinion there was in response to that set of events. Uh, again, there were frictions in particular places. You know, there were riots in a few mm-hmm. cities that got a huge amount of attention. Um, there were particular countries that had um, substantial frictions that got a lot of attention but uh, overall there's very little change in attitudes toward immigration and very little connection apparent between the changes that did occur and how significant the crisis actually was in particular places i spent a lot of time looking at germany where this was a huge issue and a lot of people thought that Chancellor Merkel was risking her career by standing up for uh, the policy of uh, taking refugees in and trying to incorporate them into society. And um, there was a notable backlash against that in one election, but she managed to survive the election and continue as chancellor anyway. And looking overall through this whole period before, during, and after the crisis, there's really no shifted all in Germans' attitudes about immigration. If you look at Sweden, they had throughout this period probably the most favorable views about immigrants of any country. They had a huge influx of immigrants, and the Sweden Democrats, the right-wing populist party there, did try to exploit that in order to increase their electoral support. But overall, there was a brief dip and then a recovery in these generally favorable attitudes toward immigrants. The other point to note here is that there's been a increase in the favorability of attitudes toward immigrants across Europe over this two decade period that has in substantial part to do with a gradual process of generational change. Mm -hmm. Almost everywhere younger people are, more relaxed about immigration and more favorable toward immigration than older people. And so as older people age away and younger people replace them in most of these countries, you see a kind of gradual increase in support for immigration. And I think the best get, excuse me, the best bet just demographically is that that's likely to continue even in places where overall favorability toward immigrants
0: is relatively low. Mm. Do you, do you know just off the top of your head uh, what the uh, the number of immigrants are in, say, 2019 in Europe compared to, um, you know, in the middle of the, the, the migrant crisis in 2014, 2015, I believe?
1: Uh, I don't know the numbers offhand. Uh, some of these refugees have been settled and are, you know, counted mm-hmm. as Immigrants within the countries where they settled and um, Others either got sent back or got some place got sent someplace else so um, I don't have a Kind of total in mind of where the numbers ended up again There's a fair amount of variability across countries right. and in some countries. What's striking is the large number of immigrants that they've been able to incorporate I think overall the share of uh, immigrants in Sweden doubled over this 20 year period Uh, in other places, the numbers have been quite small and even small numbers sometimes create political frictions, which again are sometimes exacerbated by mainstream politicians who exaggerate in their own minds, the strength of this opinion and the steps that they have to take in order to try to
0: address it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, Moving forward again, so, uh, big picture, uh, like you said, uh, there has been, from what you've seen, no real shift in, uh, in confidence in politicians or, or in trust of them, uh, no real loss in satisfaction with the way democracy is operating or with democratic institutions or, uh, you know, satisfaction with, with the government's, um, you know, there was this fear that, uh, you know, this, the, the, the crisis of the economic dissatisfaction, uh, you know, in the, in the wake of the crisis and that uh, the austerity cuts, the austerity politics would sort of, uh, you know, corrode public confidence in, in these things. But um, yeah, like you said, that hasn't, <laughs> that hasn't really happened at all.
1: Uh, Yeah, there is a connection between the observed shifts in attitudes about how things are going economically and how they're going Mm -hmm. politically. So if the euro crisis had somehow resulted in a kind of long term major economic depression in Europe, if the EU had botched the situation as severely as some people feared that they might, then there might also be a long term political consequence of the sort that people were worried about. But I think um, in part because the economic crisis was turned out in most places to be less severe than people feared. Uh, the connection to politics also turned out to be much less important um, than people expected. And the notion in particular that this supposed wave of right-wing populist sentiment is a result in some direct sense of, economic disaffection or of the Euro crisis doesn't seem to hold water.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing, what about, uh, what about polarization, you know, ideological polarization, political polarization? We always, uh, it certainly seems like it's increasing here, at least for the sort of more uh, online or more politically engaged uh, people. Um, in this country. I don't know if it's happening everywhere, but uh, is it increasing? Is it increasing in Europe? And if so, is there is there anything to fear with that?
1: Um, Given the measures that I've been able to look at, it doesn't look like there's really a substantial increase. Uh, The survey questions, uh, you know, people place themselves on the left, right scale, or they answer questions about immigration or about the EU. And we can look to see how many people are, you know, at the extreme poles of these responses. And that number has increased a little bit, but not really very much. And the increase over this period on the whole um, is as much or more from more people expressing extreme left positions than expressing extreme right positions. Uh, But that's mostly true in the U.S. as well. And we still think there's a lot of political polarization. I think that's because uh, people's responses to these questions, kind of abstract questions about political issues and policy are probably not the best way to get at polarization. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the U.S., people have mostly measured, you know, how do you feel about the other party and the kind of affective, polarization the feeling about negativity toward the other party um based i think more on values and symbolism than on policy has increased in recent years in the US that might be true in Europe as well but it's hard to tell because our US measuring stick of asking about the opposing party doesn't work nearly as well in more complicated multi-party systems mm-hmm. so i think one of the things we're lacking is uh, good data to be able to say, really, uh, the extent to which European politics has become more polarized or what that might mean. But just in terms of extreme positions on political issues, there doesn't seem to be much increase.
0: Gotcha. All right. So oh man, we've already gone like 45 minutes. Well, um, talk a little bit, if you could, about Hungary and Poland, because those are the two countries that um, seem to be causing uh, political commentators the most uh, the most serious <laughs> you know uh, the fears of uh, uh, authoritarianism rising in those countries of you know a, dem- a democratic backsliding um, uh, you know of this of, of this right-wing populism um, the spread of right-wing populism in those countries but was there actually a you uh, a populist wave in those countries or were the, the changes, um, uh, the more authoritarian changes that have happened um, since the uh, election of uh, the, these uh, right-wing parties in these countries um, uh, was the anti-democratic changes brought from (laughs) More from uh, the leadership of those parties pushing for it than from a groundswell from uh, from the rank and file itself
1: well, I think these are really important cases because they are the most dramatic instances of democratic backsliding any place in Europe. They're places where the ruling parties have significantly attempted to entrench themselves in power by changing the electoral rules. They've cracked down on independent judges. They've tried to intimidate the press and so on. So um, they are significant instances of democratic backsliding, but I think they're important because a lot of observers of support for right-wing populist parties in other part of Europe are concerned, not because of the impact that those parties have actually had, One prominent scholar referred to them as minor nuisances in the politics of Western Europe. But the idea is that somehow the fact that these parties are gaining support is going to lead to a situation like the one in Hungary or the one in Poland. And so what I set out to do was to get a sense of the extent to which what was going on there really was comparable or similar in some important sense to the patterns of support for right-wing populist parties in Western Europe. And I found that really there's very little connection. Um, If you look at surveys that were conducted in those countries before the right-wing populists took power, there's virtually no connection between support for those parties and the kinds of attitudes that we've been talking about, like, opposition to immigration or opposition to the european union or distrust of uh, the incumbent politicians they really seem to have been pretty much conventional conservative parties that were the most obvious alternatives to incumbent parties that really had spectacularly failed through huge uh, scandals or mismanagement um, of one kind or another so Mm -hmm. they got elected i think In very conventional ways but then after they got elected took advantage of the opportunity to entrench themselves in power and one of the ways they did that was to rely increasingly on the kinds of appeals that right-wing populist parties have made in other places so Orban for example in Hungary Um, after he took power, began to uh, engage in really harsh anti-immigrant rhetoric and anti-EU rhetoric and tried to use that as a way to bolster himself in power. But those really weren't the bases of his election in the first place. And so I think viewing what happened in these countries as a outcome of right-wing populist sentiment, I think, is an important misreading of what happened and imagining that the same kinds of pattern would be likely in a place like Sweden or even a place mm-hmm. like Italy, I think is um, a pretty serious misreading of the situation.
0: Uh, how much, um, if any, uh, do you think that the sort of, um, what's the best way to put this? The, uh, the <laughs> The concern from um, from the center left of the rise of any sort of uh, populist right wing party in a European country. Um, how, uh, how much of that is? Do you think there's any? Um, is the, the the elephant in the room Nazism? <laughs> that like there's concern. That, uh, you know, one of these countries is going to, you know, elect some sort of 21st century equivalent to, uh, you know, a a fascist, (laughs) uh, you know, uh, militant racist uh, 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 party that's going to entrench itself. And and, uh, I mean, do you think that's uh, how much of a part of the concern over right wing populism from sort of more? elite center-left circles is because is, is of that, or do you think it's not a concern at all, really, or not really a, a thing?
1: I think it is a concern, but I guess I think that it's much more of a chronic concern than a concern of the current moment. Mm-hmm. Um, as I've said, there's a lot of this right-wing populist sentiment in most countries most of the time, right. and that's a problem that mainstream political leaders have to figure out how to deal with um sometimes they try to deal with it by ignoring the issues that are important to many voters so for example i think in the u.s um republican party leaders for a long time were trying to suppress or submerge the anti-immigrant sentiment within their own party Um, and trump obviously changed directions on that significantly um on the other hand You know, there are some instances in which I think these leaders do have to make accommodations to an important segment of the public that has views that uh, we as observers may think are distasteful in some way. Mm -hmm. But the other basis for concern here, and again, I think this is true of almost all democratic systems all the time, is that the idea that ordinary citizens have a strong attachment to democracy and are going to be willing to defend democracy at any cost is probably misplaced. I refer in my book to a terrific book by Nancy Bermeo uh, looking at breakdowns of democracy throughout the 20th century in Europe and Latin America. So she does write about the Nazis and about lots of other instances in which, you know, there have been real complete breakdowns of democracy. And she says first of all that in almost every instance these were decisions by political elites Mm -hmm. rather than by citizens it's hard to find many instances yeah the elites are the key
0: actors when in these transitions from democracy to dictatorship
1: yeah so you see very instance very few instances in which people were consciously voting for dictatorship but on the other hand Um, citizens were also generally passive in response to the breakdown of democracy. They, in most places were not, you know, immediately organized and in the street trying to resist these authoritarian leaders. And I think, you know, on the scale of democratic backsliding that we're talking about here, Mm -hmm. rather than complete uh, breakdowns of democracy, the same thing is true. If you look at Hungary, for example, um, There was some opposition to Orban and his party after they took power, but there was also a lot of public support, and the survey data suggests that that public support was rooted in significant part in a really pretty dramatic upturn in people's attitudes about how the economy was going and the trustworthiness of political leaders, the quality of their everyday lives, of social services, and ironically even... An increasing satisfaction with how democracy was working, even as foreign observers were pointing to these backsliding efforts on Orban's part. If you look at the United States, um, the 2022 election, you know, there was talk of how it was a victory for democracy because some loony election deniers uh, didn't succeed in winning statewide races. I think they would not have won anyway because they were bad candidates. If you look at the Republicans in Congress who voted to certify electoral votes on January 6th after the incursion of the Capitol, Mm -hmm. you find that there was really no observable electoral penalty. If those people ran in uh, contested races, um, they did just about as well as the Republicans who chose to support the Constitution on January 6th. And that's consistent with a good deal of research by political scientists that suggests that when democratic procedures or democratic norms come into conflict with people's strong policy preferences or their deeply held identities or um, the quality of their day-to-day lives, most people are more concerned about substance than they are about sure. democratic procedure.
0: Sure. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> before we go, cause like, so we've already gone about an hour. Um, are there any other insights or lessons, um, from Europe that are transferable to the United States or are the two places just, you know, sort of apples and oranges, you know, because of the, of the differences in, in our, governmental structures and the differences in our uh, elections and that sort of thing.
1: Well, I think the specific institutions do matter some. So, for example, in the United States, the real threat of right-wing populism is not that a right-wing populist party will emerge and gain representation in Congress, but rather that it will take over one of the existing major parties. And the real pressing question, I think, is to what extent has that happened or will continue to happen within the contemporary Republican party. So the mechanisms are different in different places, but the underlying pattern I think has some important similarities. And the most important one I think is um, this notion that what's important is the decisions that individual political leaders make. We have a kind of what Aiken and I in The book that you mentioned earlier, Democracy for Realists, referred to as the folk theory of democracy, Mm -hmm. that somehow ordinary people are controlling everything, and if things go badly, it's because their attitudes are bad or they're misbehaving. Um, Even given the mechanisms and machinery of electoral accountability that these democratic systems have, the idea is to constrain leaders and force them to do what ordinary people want them to do. But those constraints in practice, in most times and places, are pretty weak, and there's a lot of leeway for leaders to behave well or badly. Um, and so I say at the very end of my book that, you know, um, whatever they do, if they work successfully to pursue good political ends and, in particular, to uh, preserve democratic institutions, then we owe them our gratitude, but if they fail to do that either through, uh, pursuing other more venal ends or just through mismanagement and incompetence, then that's a crisis of democracy. But the crisis is a crisis of leadership rather than a crisis of public
0: opinion. Gotcha. All right. So, um, at the end here, as I said, I don't keep you an hour. Uh, but, uh, last question um something i generally ask everybody uh when they come on Uh, it's the last question i ask everybody and that's uh you know what what would you like the audience to to get out of this book or you know what's the one thing you'd want them to uh, take away from from having read it
1: uh i guess i would say that Democracy is complex, and what we should be focusing on is not so much public opinion and the hope that it will somehow regulate the system, but rather whatever it is about the culture of a particular country that leads or impels uh, political leaders to behave well or badly.
0: Gotcha. All right, great. Well, uh, before we go is there uh, anything else you want to plug any, you know, social media accounts or anything or uh appearances or whatnot, that sort of stuff? Uh no, I mean, I'm
1: trying to talk up the book wherever I can <laughs> and if people uh, get a chance to to read it. That would be
0: great. All right, great. Yeah, again, the book is Democracy Erodes from the Top: Leaders, Citizens, and the Challenge of Populism in Europe. Uh really, really fascinating book. Um uh, sort of, there were, you know, a lot, I haven't, um, I used to pay attention to what was going on in Europe quite a bit when I was younger, and uh, had the time to do it, but I really haven't had the time to do it in, in you know, probably about a decade or so, but, uh, you know, other than read about it here or there, but nothing on a serious level, and um, uh, sort of, Uh, interesting all the uh all the uh data in in this book that sort of flies in the face of what we've been told or uh you know what we've uh what the sort of um uh conservative uh or right-wing press has been hoping to happen in europe and what the more uh liberal and uh uh mainstream press has been fearing what would happen in europe is uh um you know it's just uh not uh not actually coming to pass and uh, just a lot a lot of uh, uh useful uh nuggets of information and lots and lots of if you're into charts and 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 data points and, and graphs and uh all that fun stuff which i am because you know i'm a nerd uh then you're gonna love this book it's uh, uh really really uh really fascinating and uh i'm i'm very glad to have um uh, to have read it and had a and now have a, a better understanding, a, you know, still a very limited understanding, but a, but a better understanding of what's going on uh, in Europe. So again, yeah, the book uh, "Democracy Erodes from the Top: Leaders, Citizens, and the Challenge of Populism in Europe" uh, highly, highly recommended. Everybody out there, get it. And uh, the author, my guest today, Dr. Larry Bartels. Uh, so, Dr. Bartels, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast, discussing the book with me, and uh, and thank you as well for you know taking the time. Um, and spending the effort to, uh, to get this book, uh, you know, uh, out to the world and, uh, letting everybody know what you found. I, I thought it was a really interesting book. And so, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Great uh, to talk. Uh, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on the podcast, you can reach out to me at tbenson at heartland.org. That's T B E N. S-O-N at heartland.org. You you can always reach out to me there if you have any questions or comments or anything, that sort of stuff. Uh, And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, speaking of social media, we do have our Twitter account that you can follow there uh, for updates on episodes and that sort of stuff. Our Twitter account handle is at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So make sure you give us a follow and uh, all that stuff. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So thank you for listening, everyone. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye bye.